Okay. Recently, I had fallen asleep in a recliner, and Irene was next to me, and she was in the middle of a book, and the phone rang. And so I woke up, and I said, are you going to get that? She said, no. (laughs) I said, well, I'll try. (laughs) I got up, and do you know, my knees wouldn't work. (laughs) It took me about three seconds to wake them up and, and get started toward the phone, and of course, I missed the phone. But usually the electronics says, here's who called. You can call them back if you want. (laughs) That rescued me. Um, Our scripture this morning in verse 9 starts with two-letter word, so. And those kinds of things send me back at least a, a verse. And I hear a sigh from Paul. Would you stand, please? In 8, he admits... I'd just as soon, yeah, I'd just as soon leave this body and go home to be with the Lord. And then he thinks about that and he says, So, we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since, then, we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. Thank you. The word of the Lord. I didn't know Julie was going to talk about pigs this morning. I'm not going to talk about pigs. What I am going to talk about is, I don't know, an issue that we probably don't hear addressed much from the pulpit. Um, Probably something we don't like to think about much, but that we need to understand, and that is the fear of the Lord. Um, You know, just preaching a short series, started last week, this week, and then next week, attitudes that motivate. And one of the attitudes that should motivate us is the fear of the Lord. I want to begin with a a quote from Chuck Swindoll this morning, and the first line will probably shock you, but um, Swindoll isn't saying this is what he believes, he's saying this is an attitude that I see out here, and this is what he said. There's no need to take God seriously. Then he goes on to say, I know of no philosophy more popular today. It's the reason we're caught these days in the do-your-own-thing syndrome. S-I-N-drome. What a subtle web the spider of self has woven. Millions are stuck, and instead of screaming, I'm caught, they shout with a smile, I'm free. If you don't take God seriously, then there's no need to take your marriage seriously, or the rearing of children, or such character traits as submission, faithfulness, sexual purity, humility, repentance, and honesty. You know, too many people have sugar-coated God. So that the only things they see are the things they like and are comfortable with. 
But even if people ignore the side of God's character that makes them uneasy, or just plain pretend that that doesn't exist, it doesn't change the truth of who God is. The same God who in His holiness could not bear the sin, the perverseness, and wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah, and so exercise judgment on those cities, is the very same God we serve today. His character, His word, His attitude towards sin has not changed one bit. Because God is immutable. In other words, He is unchanging. A.W. Tozer writes this about God's unchanging nature. God never changes moods or cools off in His affections or loses enthusiasm. His attitude towards sin is now the same as it was when He drove out the sinful man from the eastward garden, and His attitude toward the sinner is the same as when He stretched forth His hands and cried, Come unto Me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God will not compromise, and He need not be coaxed. He cannot be persuaded to alter His word, nor talked into answering selfish prayer. In all our efforts to find God, to please Him, to commune with Him, we should remember that all change must be on our part. I am the Lord, I change not. We have but to meet His clearly stated terms, bring our lives into accord with His revealed will, and His infinite power will become instantly operative toward us in the manner set forth through the gospel in the scriptures of truth. Folks, God's immutability, His unchanging nature, is something we should rejoice in and be thankful for. Because God is unchanging, He will always be righteous and holy. He will never turn from good to bad. Because God is unchanging, He will always seek after His lost and wayward children. Because God is unchanging, He is completely reliable, and all His promises are true. You can take those to the bank, so we say. Because God is unchanging, we do have a hope and a future. Praise God for His unchanging nature and character. So if God is unchanging, why do so many folks fail to take Him seriously? Well, I think the answer lies in the fact that there is an attitude that is missing in people's lives. They do not know what it is to fear the Lord. And if there is one attitude that is crucial or critical or essential or vital or indispensable in taking God seriously, it is the fear of the Lord. So why do we find ourselves in this condition? Well, possibly because our society, as have others around the world and throughout history, our society has a tendency to make God in our own image, in man's image. When we do that, God becomes changeable just as we are. Fortunately, God does not fit our preconceived ideas. He cannot be squeezed into our mold. He has revealed Himself to us in His Word. He has given us a clear picture of His nature and character. And if we are to live rightly on this earth and have the kind of impact that will influence others to live rightly, 
then we must be sure that we recognize and follow that biblical revelation accurately. When we begin to think in terms of God's holiness, righteousness, and justice, our response response will be the tremendous sense of what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. So I want to begin today by looking at verse 11 in the passage that Gail read for us. Since then, Paul says, we know what it is to fear the Lord. Paul obviously knew what it meant to fear the Lord. And I think it's important for us to understand as well. So what's meant by fear the Lord? Well, if you look um, look up you know, the Greek word and how it's translated, it means reverence, it means awe, and sometimes it can mean exactly what we think when we say fear. Um, it can mean terror. Uh, remember the people at the foot of Mount Sinai? There were times when they were terrified. The fear of the Lord was all over them. Um, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it says in the Scripture, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So there are two key ideas expressed in that verse. The first is this. If we are to have wisdom, the right attitude toward the Lord is fundamental. And the second thing is, the right attitude toward the Lord comes only from an accurate understanding of the Lord. Each of us has a favorite aspect of God's character that we find appealing, right? Love. We're going to talk about that next week, by the way. Mercy, grace, kindness. Any one of those may be what we tend to focus on, but we don't have the freedom just to pick the ones we want. Our view of God must be complete. God is revealed in Scripture as the one who will be our final judge. Paul makes reference to that in the passage that we read today. He is the one who acts in total righteousness and complete justice. He is described as the one who is utterly pure and holy and cannot tolerate sin. Any view of God that does not include these truths is inaccurate and inadequate. Paul says in verse 10 of our text, For we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, good or bad. The fear of the Lord. So, our first point this morning. An accurate and balanced view of God reveals that He is to be feared. Of course, the other side of this picture... And we don't want to forget that, reveals that God is also a God of grace and that He is prepared to deal with us in mercy and forgiveness in a way that we do not deserve. That's grace. It was the old country preacher Vance Havner who once said, if God dealt with people today as He did in the days of Ananias and Sapphira, every church would need a morgue in the basement. Praise God for His boundless grace, 
When we acknowledge our sinfulness before God's holiness, we qualify to receive his mercy, grace, and forgiveness. Oh, that's good news. 2 Corinthians, um, well, this same chapter, verse 5, in verses 21, tell us that we need to be reconciled to God. It also tells us that God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us. Again, there are two truths that are apparent in these verses. First of all, we are sinful. Second of all, we have been estranged or separated from God because of that sin. Now, some people feel like everything is fine with God and them. They perceive no separation. As far as they're, they're concerned, sin isn't that big a deal and God really isn't bothered too much by it. These people have never sought to be reconciled or have their sins forgiven. The reason? They've never been struck by the immensity of their sin and the awfulness of separation from God. You know, um, this is yet a sidelight. I planned to write this in here, but I think that's one of the things we don't recognize about what eternity without God will be like. Total and complete separation from God. I can't even imagine it. We can't imagine it because we've not experienced that. God is still present through the person of his Holy Spirit in our world. We do not know what total and complete eternal separation from God is like. That's a scary thought to me. So, people have never been struck by the immensity of their sin and the awfulness of separation from God. And that is because they have an an inaccurate understanding of who God is. Paul also reminds us of our accountability to God for the lives we have lived. We will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give account. And there is no such thing as shirking our responsibility. Folks, that is something guaranteed for all of us someday. For example, the Bible makes it clear that the only acceptable place, and this is a common issue in our culture, the only acceptable place for a sexual relationship is within the bond of marriage. Boy, has our culture danced around that one. We have all sorts of excuses for circumventing God's standard for sex, such as, it's okay if people really love each other, or God's standard is old-fashioned, it's out of date, it's puritanical, or... The sex drive is so powerful that you just can't stop. By the way, I heard Josh McDowell. Remember Josh McDowell? I heard him address that excuse. You just can't stop. He said it's a problem of motivation. And he gave this example. Girl calls boyfriend. Mom and dad are out of town for the weekend. Why don't you come over? So they're on the couch, they're getting involved, clothes are being removed, when suddenly they hear the sound of the parent's car in the driveway. Mom and dad have forgotten something and returned to get it. Do you think they can stop? He said, you bet they can, because they have the right motivation. 
And then this one I heard in a premarital counseling session one time. I was addressing this subject of sexual involvement, and the guy said, well, I wouldn't buy a car without trying it out first. She didn't really say how she felt about that one, but... Listen, a decision to engage in any activity known to be against the law of God is sin. We must bring ourselves under the scrutiny of God's revelation of himself in his word and evaluate ourselves accordingly. It's only when we do this that we accurately see God as he is and ourselves as we are. Mankind, in all our best intentions, in all our most noble trying, in all our grandest desires, is totally incapable of standing up under the awesome holiness, righteousness, justice, and judgment of God. In reality, of course, it is one thing to have an accurate understanding, but it is another to respond appropriately with the fear of the Lord. We may know all these things in our head, but it's got to make a difference in our lives and how we relate to God. Stuart Briscoe provides an excellent illustration of this point from his own childhood. He writes, I have the privilege of being brought up in a situation that every small boy on the face of the earth would envy. We've all heard the expression... As happy as a kid in a candy store? Well, I was brought up in a candy store. We actually lived in the home just behind it. I think it was one of those things where you pass through the store and their living quarters were built right onto it. Every time I went out of our house, I walked past the candy counter. Every time I came back in, I walked past the candy counter. But I had been taught from my earliest days that the candy was not mine. If my parents gave permission, I could have a piece. Otherwise, I wasn't even to touch it. One day, when nobody was around, I walked past the counter and the temptation was just too much for me to bear. I popped some candy into my mouth. What I didn't know, however, was that my father was behind a display of produce and that he had made a peephole to enable him to keep an eye on the store while working behind the counter, cutting cheese and butter, suddenly I heard a voice saying, Stuart, come here. If it had been the voice of God himself, I would have not been more dumbstruck. I was totally flummoxed. That's a word we don't use much anymore either. I, don't know, I didn't know which way to go. Now, my father wore a white apron which, for reasons known only to my mother, was starched daily. It was blindingly bright, tied in the front with a big bow from which dangled long apron strings. And to give some idea of how big I was at the time, I had just recently announced that I was as high as Daddy's shop rope, which meant I had reached the level of his navel. As I walked very subdued before him, I remember vividly the awful starched whiteness before my eyes. The depth of his voice seemed to come from the height of heaven, and the effect was awe-inspiring. Then he gave me a talk about whose sweets they were, about what I was to do if I wanted one, about the fact that I had taken one without permission. 
He went on to remind me that my action was stealing, that thieves are grown men who start out as little boys who steal candies, and that if I continued, I would end up in prison. And I recall thinking to myself, we've come a long way from one candy to prison. (laughs) Nevertheless, he got the message across. It was stern, it was straight. It came from high up, that impeccable knot right in front of my eyes. The impact was phenomenal. And I can promise you, I never took another candy again. The episode taught me more powerfully than any other that you don't touch what isn't yours. But the reason I was able to handle that kind of fatherly reprimand was the look of love in his eyes. His sternness and his straightness, his justice and judgment were not divorced from his love. I knew he was right, and as a small boy, I responded to it. Each of us must come to see God like that, in the reality of his person, and then we must respond to him in an appropriate way. You know, the prophet Isaiah is a wonderful example of how a man or woman responds appropriately to an encounter with the holiness of God. Isaiah chapter 6. I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And how did Isaiah respond to this scene? He fell on his face before the Lord and said, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King the Lord Almighty. The prophet's right understanding, his realization of who God was, resulted in a fear of the Lord. We see this in his sense of smallness, in the the presence of God's greatness, in his humility and submission to divine authority, and in in his sense of shame in the presence of God's purity and holiness. That This is what it means to fear God. The Lord. So, what hinders a proper understanding and response to God? In Psalms 36 1, the psalmist says of the unbeliever, There is no fear of God before his eyes, for in his own eyes he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his sin. What is this verse telling us? It says that when an individual has no fear of the Lord, it is because the Lord is small and insignificant in his or her thinking. When a person is totally absorbed with themselves and God is on the fringe of their life, if he is considered at all, then it is likely that they will be so self-centered that they will neither detect nor hate their own sin. We see this kind of philosophy in what we call New Age teaching. This idea that everyone has this unlimited potential. We all have the potential to be gods. We are, we are to be self-focused. And when you believe that, you become your own standard for right and wrong and so are able to excuse or ignore any sin in your life. Not so with the response of godly fear. Through the work of the Spirit revealing to us who God is, 
We detect the reality of sin in our lives. And once we realize what it is, we are then ready to reject it for what it is. We throw out all excuses that would displace blame and call it what the Bible calls it, sin. We do that because we have an overwhelming and convicting sense of the holiness, righteousness, and justice of God. Proverbs 8.13 says, To fear the Lord is to hate evil. And I would add this, especially in our own lives. Especially in our own lives. The next point, the fear of the Lord is something we must learn. And by the way, I would also say it's it's something we need to teach. Psalm 34.11 Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. The knowledge that is available and what we can teach kids and train them, well, it's growing every day. And despite this, the, fat, the, the sad truth is that fewer and fewer are taught what it means to respond in reverence, in awe, and in fear of the Lord. When people truly grasp the fear of the Lord, they are so concerned about what it means that they have a desire to teach it to their children so that from the time that they can understand, the child knows who God really is. One thing that characterizes a person who fears the Lord is that they are eager to learn more of what it means to fear the Lord. And then the fear of the Lord is something we must choose. It's something we must learn and teach. It's also something we must choose. Proverbs 1.29 says that people hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. And folks, it still happens today. Some people, to put it in secular terms, just simply choose to do their own thing. Whether it be cheating on a spouse, engaging in a sinful habit, being dishonest with finances at work or home, they engage in these activities in secret. They lead double lives so that spouses, bosses, or churches won't find out. It would cause too much trouble. And most of these people know that what they are doing is wrong, but they choose to block God out. They choose to minimize the seriousness of what they are doing. They choose not to fear the Lord. By contrast, people who fear the Lord, are willing to choose rightly, are willing to learn more of that motivating fear and recognize that the fear of the Lord will teach them to avoid evil. Proverbs 16.6 says, Through the fear of the Lord, a man avoids evil. Jay Carty illustrates this principle in his book entitled Counterattack. He writes, you may be saying, Jay, I want to hear about the love of God. Don't preach this fear of God to me. Listen carefully. I spend half of my time on the road, and there's been an occasion or two when it's been a solid dose of the fear of God that's kept my nose clean. I have even gotten to the point of being willing to disobey God 
but I was afraid of the consequences. I knew the outcome would be severe. A time of physical pleasure followed by seconds of zing can never substitute for destroying a family, ruining a ministry, and causing the dominoes who look to you to stumble and fall. Besides, resulting footholds can cause too many problems. The fear of the Lord helps us keep from getting so close to the fire that we get burned or even possibly destroyed. The fear of the Lord really is the beginning of wisdom, and it is something we must choose. So, what happens when the fear of the Lord motivates a person? Well, the fear of the Lord produces a disciplined life. According to Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 6, the, the Ten Commandments were given by God to keep His, to, given by God, excuse me, to His people to help them learn the fear of the Lord and keep them from sinning. Here is what I expect from you, and not to do these, these things or to do these things is sin. People who fear the Lord recognize His commands and are motivated to discipline their lives that they might keep them. By the way, there's kind of a disturbing thing happening out there in some well-known preachers right now. Um, They're saying that the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments are irrelevant. Uh, Yeah. Uh, That's where we're headed. I mean, that's the kind of deception that Satan uh, gets people to believe and unfortunately it leads to, well, a failure to fear the Lord and the consequences that come therewith. So the fear of the Lord produces disciplined living. The fear of the Lord produces holy living. 2 Corinthians 7.1 Paul writes, Therefore... Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us pure ourselves, uh, purify ourselves from everything that connect, contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Um, if you read this verse in other versions, it speaks of perfecting holiness in the fear of God. A motivating factor. People who fear the Lord want to live holy lives. Now, it's not a desire we're born with. Um, Just try telling your friends, or in some cases family or co-workers, that your highest aspiration is to live a holy life and watch their reaction. In most cases, they'll treat you as if you had a screw loose. I mean, how does that desire, if we're not born with that, how does that desire come into a person's life? Well, when we understand the holiness of God, when we understand that we come from a holy God, when we understand that we are loved by a holy God, and when His Holy Spirit lives in us, then the desire to be holy takes root. Our society is characterized by lax living, loose morals, and superficiality. These attitudes have even entered into the church. And I think we all have seen that. 
But when we're willing to admit that God is neither impressed nor pleased with us, when we accept the fact that we will one day stand before Him and give an account of our lives, then we begin to understand what the fear of the Lord is about. Our fear leads to repentance, which in turn leads to a desire for renewal. The fear of the Lord leads inevitably to disciplined and holy living. And then, the fear of the Lord produces concerned living. Verse 11, Since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. Because we understand the fear of the Lord, we are concerned about people and we look for ways to demonstrate that concern. A part of our unique mission as as the church is to reach the lost for Jesus. And you may be thinking now, what's unique about that? Well, too many churches today have lost that vision. Why? Because there's a lack of concern in the church today for people who don't know Jesus as Savior. The reason? We may not honestly believe they are lost. I mean, there's that thought out there that everybody is basically good, right? Or the idea that, well, I can do a good, enough good things to offset the bad things, and if you know, the scale tips toward the good, I'm good to go. My ticket's punched. So we we don't honestly believe people are lost. We don't really believe in the judgment of God. And as a result, because, hey, a loving God would never judge anybody, right? We don't really believe in the judgment of God. And as a result, don't believe that people can be lost eternally. I mean... There's this idea that nobody, well, well, the word, it's our call, really. Nobody goes to hell. Right? Listen, I've done enough funerals of people that um, I might have just been called in to do a funeral. I, 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 I volunteered when we lived in Eastern Oregon. Um, I said to the to the men who, who owned and ran this mortuary in our town, if you need a pastor, if you have a family that doesn't have a pastor or a, a church, call me. And they would do that sometimes. And I would sit down with the family, and I'd hear about their loved one. And what I heard was not very encouraging. But you know what they always said? They're in a better place. They always said that. No matter, no matter what the stories I'd heard about the family member that they loved, no matter what kind of life they lived, they were always in a better place. Because we have this idea out there that God does not send anyone to hell. Well, that's true. God does not send anyone to hell. It's a choice we make. But people do go. It's a real place, and people will go there. But we have to believe that. And it should burden us enough that we don't want anybody to go there. Amen? So if you don't believe all these things, 
You also don't believe that people need to repent of their sin and, and accept Jesus as Savior. Listen, folks, the fear of the Lord demonstrates itself in a concern for others, in a commitment to evangelism and missions. It leads to genuine belief in the lostness of humanity, our inherent sinfulness, and the inevitability of the judgment that faces all of us. And if we fear the Lord, we will will fear for those who don't fear the Lord. Did you hear that? If we fear the Lord, we will fear for those who don't fear the Lord. So what a wonderful thing it is to rightly understand God and respond appropriately to him. It's a powerful motivating factor. And the key to it all is a balanced view of God. God, of course, is gracious. Of course, he is merciful. Of course, he is loving. Of course, he is forgiving. But he is also holy, just, righteous, and our judge. Therefore, if we are to live rightly before him, both sides must be built into our understanding. And all the people had an enthusiastic... Only then will we incorporate a proper fear of the Lord in our relationship with Him. I want to close today with a a song called He'd walked with Jesus, but he made a really bad decision. And God came upon him in conviction. And he trembled before God because he knew if he didn't deal with this sin in his life, the consequences would be desire. Sometimes that's what it means, our fear of the Lord. I'm glad that God comes to us in conviction, aren't you? Oh, he's not willing for us to stray without calling us back. Well, I hope that was your testimony this morning. I choose the fear, the way, and the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father God, you are to be feared to be reverenced. We are to be in awe of you. And sometimes we tremble before you. I think of that scripture that says, our God is a consuming fire. That's pretty serious business. And Father, along with our view of you as as a God who loves and a God of grace and a God of mercy and a God of forgiveness, And kindness, help us also to remember that you're a God of holiness, of righteousness, of justice, and of judgment. May our view of who you are be complete. And may we, each one of us, choose the fear of the Lord. And may it be evidenced in our lives. Father, may we, when we have opportunity, Not only learn more of it, but teach it to others. And Father, we give you praise today. You are awesome, holy, majestic, almighty God. And we stand in awe. We do. We stand. We stand in awe of who you are. Oh God, you are worthy of all our praise. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for being here today. May God's grace and peace be with you as you go this morning.